0: Hello, everybody, and welcome to episode 136 of the Northern Miner podcast. I'm your host, John Cumming, the editor-in-chief of the Northern Miner. This episode is all about palladium with our special guest, Jim Gallagher. He's the president and CEO of North American Palladium. That's the world's only pure play palladium producer. North American Palladium has its Lactazil palladium mine near Thunder Bay in northwestern Ontario, and it's also a big turnaround story in the last couple of years. Palladium has been a top performer amongst all the mine commodities over the past year. Amongst all commodities, only cocoa did better in 2018, and it now trades above gold and platinum. Of course, and silver too, on a per ounce basis, and it eclipsed gold for the first time since 2002 lately. And the palladium price peaked at 1604 in mid-March. Palladium is really on a roll these days. So we're going to talk with Jim about the fundamentals of uh, the supply and demand side of Palladium, and then we'll talk about the mine and the turnaround story there. This episode is brought to you by the Yukon Mining Alliance. That's a group of 15 explorers, developers, and miners, all active in the Yukon Territory. To be a member, you have to have a resource that has at least a uh, National Instrument 43101 resource on it. So... um Here's the current lineup. It is Alexco Attack, Banyan, Fireweed Zinc, Golden Predator, K2 Gold, Klondike Gold, Metallic Minerals, Rockhaven Strategic Minerals, Trifecta, Triumph Gold, Victoria Gold, Western Copper and Gold, and White Gold. bit of news out of the Yukon lately. Earlier this month here in April, we had the government of Yukon and the Little Salmon CarMax First Nations. They reached an agreement for their section of the Yukon Resources Gateway Project. This is the CarMax Bypass project. It'll send a road around the community of CarMax so you won't have mining trucks going through the town. So this agreement relates to potential contracting, education, and training benefits associated with the project. This is the first of a series of project agreements the government's hoping to finalize with affected First Nations on this road project. This first segment, the CarMax Bypass, will be a road from south of CarMax to the existing Free Gold Road north of CarMax. Uh, So mine trucks will be able to bypass the community. It will also improve access to the Mount Nansen site to assist remediation efforts. Two juniors putting out press releases praising this agreement were Western Copper and Gold. They have their casino project that will be helped by the road, as well as Triumph Gold, which um, has a free gold mountain property. Before we get into our discussion with Jim Gallagher of North American Palladium, we'll take a little break and there will be a new round of sponsored Mining Minutes. Now, over the next four episodes, we have a series of promoted content mining minutes. These are with Max Sally in Vancouver. He's the CEO of Barry and Mining Corp. B A R R I A N. That's a new company. It had its IPO and is listed on the Venture Exchange, TSX Venture Exchange, beginning on April 24th. It has the ticker symbol B A R I, Barry. Flagship property is his Bolo Gold property in Nevada so we'll hear from Max about his company and the project and the IPO.
1: My name is Max Sally and I'm the Chief Executive Officer of Berrien Mining Corp. Berrien Mining is a new gold-focused exploration company with assets in the United States. Our main focus is Nevada and our secondary asset is located in New Mexico. Bolo is a high-grade gold and silver project located about 90 kilometers northeast of Tonopah, Nevada. It's Carlin type mineralization from surface. It's had $3.3 million US spent on two previous drilling campaigns, which includes holes of 133 meters of 1.3 grams per ton from surface. Within that, 30 and a half meters of 3.3 grams per ton, 90 meters of a gram, and within that, 41 meters of over two grams. So, a uh, good project, lots of success previously, and we expect to go back into that project. Right now, we are shooting geophysics on the project and we will have an operational update when we come trading Monday, April 29th, letting the market know how that is going. The plan will be drilling roughly 1,800 meters, probably 200 meters per hole, and we expect to start drilling this project early June.
0: back and we'll take a little break and then we will return with Jim Gallagher, President and CEO of North American Palladium. We're joined here by Jim Gallagher. He's the president and CEO of North American Palladium. Jim, how are you doing? Uh, Doing very well today. Thank you. Jim is here to talk about Palladium, and we'll get into, of course, the uh, terrific turnaround story with North American Palladium. I'll just give a little intro to Jim here. Jim joined North American Palladium in 2013 as COO. Uh, This was a company in crisis, and he was in charge of the operational turnaround. He became president and CEO in August 2015. And before that, he had many years with Falconbridge, 30-plus years with Falconbridge, and then eight years with Hatch uh, as Global Director of Mining. So maybe more than anyone on planet Earth, uh, Jim, you watch palladium prices very closely. Can you just describe what's gone on with palladium prices the last
2: couple of years? Well, certainly uh, palladium uh, has been the metal over the last two years. It's outperformed any of the other major commodities. So it finally has gotten some attention Clearly, uh, a couple of months back, it, it met and then has exceeded the price of gold. So that's really got it on a lot of people's radar. And it's really driven by, uh, now, market fundamentals. Always a debate whether uh, palladium is a precious metal or an industrial metal. Clearly, at this point, it's really more of an industrial metal. Mm-hmm. And it's a supply-demand deficit, Yes. Uh, which has existed for several years now and is projected to continue to be in deficit from a supply side for the next few years. And that's really driven by its primary use as uh, the key element inside the catalytic converter in every gasoline engine produced uh, nowadays on the planet and very uh, strict new emission standards and also the introduction of a much tougher testing standards. So there's really been a step change in the demand for palladium, not because of total auto production, which in fact has been a bit flat for the last several months,
0: Yes. Uh, but
2: really because of changing emission standards and critical to that is a new testing regime, is which is much tougher to pass.
0: Right. And can you just explain to our listeners the difference between platinum and palladium in auto catalysts, and why is it uh, one is preferable to the other, you know, the, te- the technology and the price? How does that all uh, factor into it?
2: Right. Well, t- uh, two years back, uh, the prices for the two miles would have been reversed. Uh, platinum floated around the $1,600 U.S. dollar an ounce mark for a number of years, uh, and palladium languished in the seven, $800 range, uh, sometimes even lower. And that's really reversed. Fundamental difference, uh, platinum has a much broader market. Last year, I believe the number was close to 85% of palladium went into catalytic converters. Uh, in its heyday, about 40% of platinum was going into diesel engine catalytic converters. So there's yes. different chemistries, different reactions to heat. Platinum performs better, even though it was double the price of palladium. Platinum still preferred in diesel uh, engines and palladium in gasoline and one of the key features that's different between the two elements people often say oh, we're just going to transfer uh, and substitute platinum back in because mm-hmm. in the 80s when they started they actually started with platinum and catalytic converters but the modern catalytic converter is actually extremely efficient at removing some of the noxious gases right the, the catalytic reaction it requires high heat uh, and it adds an oxygen, and that tends to turn carbon monoxide, which is poisonous to carbon dioxide. It converts some of the carbohydrates, breaks it down, and you actually end up with water. I always say if you sit behind a, a vehicle at a stoplight and see water dripping out of the tailpipe, which you will often see, mm-hmm. uh, that's palladium at work. Oh. So, yeah. Um, One of the things they've done is gotten the heat in a catalytic converter much higher. They've moved them much closer to the exhaust in the vehicle. Mm -hmm. And the Mm -hmm. high heat uh, helps with that reaction and helps with the efficiency. And palladium responds much better in a high heat environment than platinum does. Platinum tends to break down, it clumps, becomes less effective. And it tends to wash out uh, and erode over time, uh, where palladium responds better in that environment. So that's one of the key reasons that platinum is not an easy substitute into the current catalytic converter, and not likely going to see a huge amount of substitution occur there. So different chemistries and different performances makes each one uh, suitable for different environments. And of course, in the diesel market, diesels have very much fallen out of favor. Mm-hmm. Uh, especially in Europe where it used to be well over 50%, the last numbers I saw, it was down into the 30% of the um, small engine market. Right. And that's really due to the Volkswagen scandal and the mm-hmm. awareness throughout Europe that although diesel, uh, modern diesels are, tend to be cleaner from a CO2 point of view, Mm-hmm. Uh, they are less clean from the other gases and especially particulate matters, so the stuff that you visibly see in the air. So, uh, diesels have, have really gotten a bad name in Europe, and a number of cities are talking about outright bans, and so diesel sales have fallen off dramatically.
0: Right, that's very interesting. Now, one of the trends of mining the last couple of years was the uh, it's been the excitement around electric vehicles, and uh, you know plays on lithium and uh, cobalt, nickel, that kind of thing. But palladium has a role, too, with the hybrids. Could you just explain the role of palladium with hybrid cars and what's going on with hybrid demand, how that all uh, plays into the EV story?
2: Right. So um, pure battery electric cars like a Tesla do not have platinum or palladium uh, in the mix. But the bulk of the sales that most companies are talking about when they project these very significant electrification numbers for their fleets. Uh, the bulk of those, certainly for the foreseeable future, are going to be some variation of a hybrid. Mm-hmm. And hybridization is actually quite positive for palladium, uh, mm-hmm. simply because it gets back to this whole heat issue that I mentioned for the catalytic converters. There is a higher loading in a hybrid engine to accommodate for the fact that because of the on-off cycling nature of the engine, it doesn't run as hot. Mm
3: -hmm.
2: In fact, the plug-in hybrid may not even kick in for 20 or 30 kilometers, but as soon as it kicks in, it must meet and pass the emission standard. Hmm. And So if it hasn't had a chance to get up to temperature, uh, that becomes a problem, and they're accommodating for that lower operating temperature on average, by higher up to up to 15% higher loadings of palladium inside the catalytic converter attached to the internal combustion engine so it's actually a slight net positive at this point
0: right very good now let's maybe get into some of the supply factors it's always very stable the platinum palladium market I should say over the past decades Russia is the huge producer as well as South Africa and then Canada USA Zimbabwe come in lower down but can you just characterize the mine supply worldwide right now?
2: Yeah, so it, it's uh, it's basically referenced as a flat supply. The total market for palladium last year was about ten point two million ounces.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: Uh, about forty percent of that comes out of Russia, and that's uh, Norilsk, the, the big nickel copper miner. And it's a byproduct, and so over ninety percent of the world's supply is as a byproduct of other mining. Forty mm. percent um, from Russia. 38 percent, roughly, from the platinum mines in South Africa. Yes. Subray operations uh, nickel-copper mines, both Valley and Glencore, are probably seven percent of global supply. Okay. So it really isn't driven by the palladium price because Noril's, for instance, isn't going to significantly change their production profile just because of a byproduct. Now there is a caveat on that that they do have a project that they are going to bring into production. Which will likely have some impact about five years down the road. Right. But uh, so there's really only two uh, primary palladium mines in the world, and that's uh, Stillwater in Montana, which is now owned by uh, Sabonier, uh, which is a South African gold miner, Mm -hmm. and ourselves. So really, uh, it makes us quite a unique asset, Uh, um, you know, as we're the only pure play. If you really want to leverage off the price of palladium with a mining company, we're really it on a global basis at this point.
0: Right. I guess it's almost like a textbook case of an inelastic supply with a palladium. Does,
2: absolutely. Yeah. Did, absolutely. And, and obviously there's some risk in South Africa. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's social problems. There's labor cost problems, power supply problems in sure. South Africa. There's, yes. There is some risk around the South African environment. And because of the very low price, uh, relatively speaking, or platinum, it's dropped from 1600 to the $800 range over the last couple of years. Mm-hmm. Many of the platinum mines are um, hurting and have struggled and yes. have not capitalized and not spent the capital to sustain long-term production. So there's definitely some risk on the South African side to supply.
0: Has the Russia production been caught up in the sanctions regimes at all, or is that outside of all that?
2: No, that's that's outside of that. So uh, the Russians always find a way to get product to market. So
0: right, right. I'm just looking at the palladium price today. It's 1356. Gold 1276. Platinum 884. And palladium peaked at 1604. Is there certain point where it just gets too high, you get a little anxious, or, is the, uh, or do you watch the spread with platinum more, or what's what's what do you make of all this uh, peaking?
2: Yeah, so I, I, I'm less concerned about the spread, although uh, a lot of the publications pick it up, and that's that <laughs> whole substitution thing, but again, as we explained, the substitution not likely to occur. Uh, the other thing, the, the Platinum market is actually much smaller uh, by 20% than the premium mm-hmm. market. So you can't really have a lot of substitution into a market that really doesn't have much excess supply itself. So, you know, the price is driven by these fundamentals. We deal with companies like Johnson Matthey. Uh, Johnson Matthey probably produces a third of the world's catalytic converters. Wow. None of the auto companies make their own catalytic converters. It's a couple hmm. of big players.
3: Mm-hmm
2: and really even if it hits two thousand dollars an ounce which some analysts have forecasted that might be a hundred dollars uh, a vehicle right. uh, and that is not material enough to force the manufacturers to make a switch uh, the auto companies do not want headlines around auto emissions, not anymore. You don't want to take the risk of changing the formulation. If they did substitute, they would have to totally redesign where the catalytic converter is located, move it away from the heat source, etc. And there's just zero interest in that. And the other driver, it takes multiple years not only to design, but then to go through the global testing regimen to pass the various jurisdictions. And again, the auto companies have no appetite to do that. They're spending their research dollars, obviously, on, on the whole electrification push uh, and the technology push for $100. bucks, they are not going to sweat over the cost of a catalytic converter. They want it to work. The headlines are very, very negative around emission standards if they don't pass. And to that point, uh, about two, almost three weeks ago now, in the United States, they've announced a million vehicle recall for Fiat Chrysler. Hmm. And that's really because, uh, and that's to replace their catalytic converters. And so there's a negative headline. And the interesting thing, what the U.S. are doing is unofficially doing what the Europeans have officially done and introduced a real driving emission test. It's okay to pass in the, in the laboratory, and that's still part of the testing regime, you know, on the treadmill, so to speak. But now you've got to go out in the real world. The Europeans have an official 16-kilometer loop. Uh, high-speed passing, stop-and-go traffic, cold starts, that sort of thing, a much more difficult test to pass an emission standard. The Americans haven't officially adapted that, but inside of this message about Chrysler Fiat, they obviously tested them in the real-world environment and said, they don't come close enough to meeting the lab tests. You've got to fix this. So that's uh, what I mean about not only have the emission standards increased, there's euro 6 and china 6a and 6b and 6c coming down and so this trend is continuing but with the introduction of this real driving emissions test Mm -hmm. uh, and it offered a pass and that's forcing up to 30 percent higher loadings of palladium in order to for the auto companies to pass that so
0: right and so a typical auto catalyst would be maybe a tenth of an ounce of palladium
2: is that right yeah, three three grams or so uh, has been typical, and that number is now moving up. And, uh, you know, uh, vehicle buying trends, despite the green push, uh, the reality, certainly still in North America, is that big trucks and SUVs are absolutely dominant in the market. And, of yes. course, bigger engines uh, require bigger loadings. And, uh, you know, recent announcements by GM and Ford Essentially, they're getting out of the small car market. Uh, mm. They've shut down some of those auto plants. So, right, right. Uh, you know, so all of that's in the background. Uh, multiple, multiple things that are driving uh, the demand for palladium and have resulted in the recent price spikes.
0: So, you look at a seventy thousand uh, dollar SUV in a parking lot. The palladium may be a hundred or two hundred dollars in there.
2: Yeah, exactly. And and so it's, it's really immaterial, uh, given the risk of not passing and, you know, having a full recall or actually being forced to take a product line off the road uh, is something the auto companies don't want to mess with. Uh, before we get into your company, just
0: another supply side of it. What's going on with the stockpiles? That's one area where we do have movement, like, where do you look for the stockpiles um, numbers and that kind of thing?
2: Yeah, so so there's the so-called visible stockpiles, which uh, are the uh, exchange-traded funds, the ETFs, Mm -hmm. which were certainly a big part of driving the price and the volatility, quite frankly, that Mm -hmm. uh, did exist uh, over the last couple of years in uh, Palladium. But those visible stockpiles have been drawn down to near record lows over -hmm. the last decade. And that's really the supply-demand fundamental. Uh, The auto companies have been buying out some of these stockpiles. And so the visible stockpiles are are at lows and the prices continue to rise. So there's been a disconnect between the relationship in investor interest, loading up ETFs with palladium, and the price would respond to that. Now the ETFs are at very low levels and the price has gone on to record levels. So it's a fundamental supply-demand issue at at present. The other stockpiles, which tend to be the government ones or what uh, the Russians hold, the, the visibility we have is through companies, again, like Johnson Mapping Metals Focus, that uh, we an independent uh, firm, and they really track the total supply demand picture. And when they see more palladium coming uh, onto the market than they can account for, they usually account that to the uh, Russians. Uh, So there's not a lot of visibility to what they do from government stockpiles. Mm -hmm. So there was a belief they they did sell off some over the last several years, but that's uh, probably uh, remained fairly stagnant recently. And the only one that we do have color on is Norilsk does talk about having pulled in, I think, about 600,000 ounces into a stockpile last year. And it looks like they're trying to uh, help manage the market. So when you get a market as tight as it currently is for palladium, the Mm -hmm. danger of some real crazy price spikes, and uh, we've seen a bit of volatility recently. And the real danger is destroying the market because GM or Toyota cannot physically put their hands on palladium and build cars, you know, this week or this month. And that would be a crisis, and that would force a substitution. I think uh, what Norilsk is trying to do, which is wise and they're big enough to do it, is help moderate that in the market. So if they see the market getting a little too tight for, for the good of the overall market, they would feed some back into the market. So I think it's a good thing for them to do, to be honest.
0: And just for producers generally, how important is the spot price? or How much is forward sold? and Is that a big thing? spot price
2: well you know we uh, our company sells concentrate currently it all goes to Glencore there are two Mm -hmm. smelters here in Canada in Sudbury and then the horn in Quebec and we settle on the spot price so so it is important for us right Uh, but on the on the bigger picture um you know what's really traded on the open markets is actually pretty thin not a lot of it obviously the big producers have deals in the background from the primary suppliers now unfortunately for us because we sell a concentrate we're very disconnected from the end product so we personally or as a company do not have uh, direct deals but the refineries that produce the end product Glencore is a metal trader. They would have long-term contracts with the Johnson Matthews BASF as another big producer. So there are relationships and and long-term relationships there. So really what's on the market is uh, not always representative of what's going on in, in the back rooms with the bigger deals.
0: Right. Now let's uh, get into North American Palladium here. This must be incredibly gratifying for you. Uh, You come into the company, 2013, the dark days. Could you just explain to our listeners who aren't intimately familiar with this tremendous turnaround story what was going on in 2013 and all the things that have happened with the company? The the timing's fantastic, you must be uh, happy to be on a roll these days.
2: Yeah, well, there were many dark days. Uh, We weren't always sure the company would survive, but, you know, it's 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 a good asset. It's been around for 25 years. Uh, it's a, a huge and rather unique ore body because in the PGM space, uh, most ore bodies are narrow vein, very high cost mining. We're a big, bulk mineable, big footprint ore body with a huge resource, and and that's part of our part of our turnaround story. But mm-hmm. the company had gotten itself in trouble, uh, really, with the underground mine expansion that included a mine shaft. Unfortunately, it was started. Uh, starting really in 2010, mm-hmm. uh, on the back of a preliminary economic assessment, which you know is really not the sufficient level of detail in yes. estimating and estimating and design. And by 2013, they uh, had run out of money. Uh, they had raised quite a bit of money on the equity markets based on the expansion story. But uh, as many projects, unfortunately, had gone in those times, was over budget, was behind schedule, was not delivering the ounces at that point in time, and company uh, really was out of money and had tapped the equity markets. Uh, Nobody wanted to talk to them anymore. So that's when uh, Brookfield Asset Management stepped in early in 2013 and and made an initial loan of 130 million US. I joined uh, just after Brookfield had invested. And really uh, the fact that Brookfield had invested, I think was part of my decision to join. We obviously had a supportive a shareholder who, uh, well, not a shareholder at that point in time, but mm-hmm. a supportive investor. Yes. But by 2015, the company still had uh, so many fundamental issues that when they ran out of money, they made some poor decisions, quite frankly. Hmm. Shaft was stopped short, backfill plant didn't get built, tailings capacity was literally weeks out instead of years out, as it should be. And um, Company tripped some financial covenants in the Brookfield loan. Brookfield stepped in, converted their debt to equity, and in 2015, August of 2015, uh, became a 92% owner of the company. Wow. Uh, that's when I moved into the CEO uh, position. Yes. They recognized that it was an operational fix that was required, and, and my mandate for the next couple of years after that was simply fix the asset. So we were heads down. Uh, didn't go out in the public domain very much, didn't engage investors because we had a 92% investor, and we've been focused on fixing the asset. Uh, We had to fix a lot of the infrastructure issues. We fundamentally changed the underground mining method to a sub-level cave uh, mine that we introduced some fill from surface to Mm -hmm. to bulk up the cave, and that probably saved the the operation, uh, and we made that decision in 2016, and it's now become... uh, very reliable we are currently one of the largest and lowest cost underground mines in Canada so right. tremendous a, really we uh, last quarter of last year we were at $35 a ton hoisted to surface so wow. uh, substantially lower than uh, most mines in Canada at this point
0: that's terrific and what happened with the uh, cash and debt and all those covenants and that kind of thing
2: well, we're, uh, you know, it's obviously almost a clean balance sheet now. Um, the last bit of debt will quickly be paid off this year. So we're going to be a debt-free company generating a significant amount of cash. Wow. Uh, we, we had free cash flow of almost $96 million last year. And um, that was at an average plating price of about $1,100 an ounce. So we're still much better than that uh, so far this year. Uh, So it's going to be a good year. Uh, We have declared a dividend. Yes, congratulations.
0: um, You know, very modest
2: initially, but I think the board's going to keep reviewing that policy and the amount each quarter, and I expect uh, returning uh, cash to shareholders uh, is going to be part of our strategy moving forward, which is in itself a bit unique in the mining space these days.
0: Yes, and could you just explain this latest Brookfield financing? It's a little unusual as well.
2: Yeah, so, um, you know, a 92% shareholder, uh, Brookfield can't just casually sell shares on the market. Look, their whole investment thesis, the fund that we're owned uh, in, goes and looks for distressed assets across every segment of the market. And if they believe that there's value in the asset, uh, they'll buy in and sponsor a turnaround. And that's uh, once the turnaround is achieved, then they want to redeploy that capital and move on. So that's really what's in play uh, obviously the company's making significant amount of money uh, our share price has, has uh, tripled and quadrupled actually from their original investment time and the plating market's doing very very well so you know all the triggers are there so brookfield does need to exit and this secondary offering that was just put on the market as a bought deal is kind of the first step in that so eventually uh, you know probably over the next couple of years and in a responsible manner Brookfield does want to sell down and, and move this into the market.
0: Right. I should say this is a $75 million financing, and that'll bring Brookfield down to, was it 80, 81%? Oh, 81. Correct. Is yeah. there some reason you picked $75 million or could
2: it be uh, more? It's, or? It's, it's really what the market would take right uh, mm-hmm. out of the starting gate. One, one of the problems for some of the larger investments houses is still a small uh, float or small liquidity. so... Uh, if you take a big position, can you sell it? Uh, you know, One of the risk strategies they all have is can you sell it quickly if yes. you have to? Mm-hmm. And with a small float, that becomes a, still a bit of a challenge. So uh, it's going to be a couple of uh, progressive steps, I believe, before uh, you see a sizable um, um, position sold off from Brookfield.
0: Right. Now we just have a couple of minutes left. With this new feasibility study, late last year, you've got another nine years of mine life. But you have an exploration program as well. Could you just talk about the upside of the property? This is a long-life mine,
2: obviously. Yeah. So you know, over the last 15 years, with very little money spent on exploration, actually, we've replaced all of our ounces. We currently have about three million ounces, and we've mined about three million over the last 15 years. So we've had a hundred percent replacement. We have more targets today than we ever have had in the mine's history. So. Wow. We spent $12 million last year, that increased to $16 million, and I expect we'll go higher this year because we will be going back to the board based on success. So we have several underground targets. We used to think we were just dealing with the, the big Roby zone, which got offset across the fault and is now called the offset zone. Uh, but what, what we have discovered is there's a number of satellite zones, smaller uh Uh, cylindrical, vertical, so we have lots of options underground, which are actually very close to the mine workings in the the shaft. So we're very confident we're going to keep on mining. We have not found the depth extension of the ore body yet, and really Mm -hmm. due to a lack of good drilling platforms. Mm -hmm. So lots of uh, opportunity there, and then we have near-surface opportunities which are potentially open-pitable within 2 kilometers of the mine site and again, we've identified a couple of targets. We've got some drill holes through, uh, not all of which we have announced, right. some which we have. So uh, right close to the mine site, we have both surface and underground opportunities. And the other exciting one in the greenfields is what, 75 kilometers from the mine site. It's called Sunday Lake. It's actually uh, 25 kilometers north of Thunder Bay. And we optioned that off of Impala Platinum, the hmm. South Africans, three years ago. They had been exploring in Canada for PGMs for more than a decade, (laughs) uh, but backed away three years ago due to their own financial uh, challenges, and uh, we optioned that off them. They had some interesting hits. Uh, We've done some modern geophysics, and uh, there's more to be told on that story, uh, so stay tuned on that as well.
0: Good to hear, and I guess uh, when would your first quarter results come out?
2: Uh, May 3rd, I believe, we'll publish, and uh, we'll have a good investor call. And, uh, yeah, I think there will be some good news coming it should, out on it should
0: that. be interesting to see the effect of the plating price on your quarterly results. Anyway, congratulations on the big turnaround, and uh, thanks for joining us today.
2: Well, thank you very much.
0: Okay, thanks, Jim. Bye-bye. does it for this week's episode. Thanks so much for joining us. You can help out the podcast as always by liking it, sharing it, commenting on it, or subscribing to it. All those things help raise the visibility of the podcast. That's it for now. Thanks again for listening and bye-bye.